That was Britney Spears' 1998 debut song, Baby One More Time, which often people refer to it as Hit Me Baby One More Time. And actually, there's a compilation CD that BMG had put out in 1999, uh, A Celebration of Caring, in which the actual set list, track list, if you will, says Hit Me Baby One More Time. So when you pop the CD in there, it even shows it on that. Hit me, baby, one more time. And we went all the way into that in a previous episode. But rewind, I want to welcome you all to the Original Doll podcast. I am your host, James Rodriguez Horton. On the Original Doll, I interview songwriters, producers, collaborators, music, radio insiders, and more to unpackage music, to unpackage the legacy of Britney Spears. So on today's episode, I wanted to jump into a little bit something different. We in the Britney fandom have had many times asking, what was the actual, you know, birthday release date for Baby One More Time? You know, was it August 23rd? Was it the 22nd? Here and there. What we at the Original Doll are going with is the August 16th date, August 16th, 1998. And we picked that specifically because... That was the first time the song was detected on radio per media base. And the reason why this is important is we're going to actually go into this. Britney Spears' label, Jive, had spent some time before October 23rd pushing this song, having Britney Spears appear at radio stations. And in actuality, you know, through mid-September, almost half, almost half of the states in the United States had a radio station playing Baby One More Time. So that's well, you know, a month before people celebrate the physical release. And the reason why I wanted to do radio is because radio is important. Um, in actuality, the song was a slow starter. We know that based on, I have billboard publications, radio publications, magazine articles. Uh, our guest today, Paxton, has been amazing with the resources of this. We actually have printed press and everything that shows that this song was basically sent out to radio stations, you know, in August, you know, in September, that they tried rolling it out to different formats, different stations with genres, if you will. In that, it wasn't being picked up by many people. So they started pushing forward. There's actually a shot that I'm going to be posting on Instagram that shows, you know, hey, everyone, we're now going to be impacting this other format, you know, top 40, starting September 23rd. And the reason why that's important is that's not saying that's the first premiere. It's saying, hey, now we're trying this genre because the other genres that we tried didn't work. And on the same press release, the same photo, the same magazine, it says the CD is already on your desk. So what that meant was they'd push the song out to the different program directors, radio directors, radio programmers to say, hey, play the song. And it might have got, you know, lost in the mix. So it was reminding people, hey, you already have this song. Start playing it. So we go into there's different days for August, or September 15th, September 23rd, all of that. 
I go into all of it because I think it's important to celebrate the first time that we know of on record that the song was played on radio. And that goes to Rochester, New York to WPXY. And as of still to this day, they have almost 3,000 spins of the song on that station, which ranks them amongst the top uh, radio stations with the most spins for Baby One More Time. But we're going to go into all that. Uh, I wanted to shine a light on the beginning, that version of Baby One More Time that you heard, because that is something that I pointed out in previous episodes, is pop music, especially the Swedish pop music, they have a lot of voices in there. Who you heard singing was, you know, Max Martin, of course, songwriter, things like that, and Nana Hedden, who is a background vocalist. So if you go back and listen to the beginning of it, you can hear their voices distinctly, and that is the actual chorus for Baby One More Time. You hear Britney's voice on top of it, and we've had previous guests explain, you create this neutral sound. You have these background vocalists to create the sound that Britney sings on top of to kind of spotlight her voice so if you go back and listen to the beginning you can hear those other voices and they're not britney spears on there um you do hear britney's voice on top on the lead but listen closely it's really interesting so for those first-time listeners thank you so much for tuning in and this the original doll podcast is a charitable podcast so when guests come on for each question they answer we get items donated to charity great yay we help out many people in need also for the first listens we get we get items donated to charity and a lot of these guests have come on specifically because of the charitable part so i want to thank everyone i want to thank my patreons tyler tommy max uh sam rami luke uh debbie all of these people thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you so much uh rochelle out there i'll be sending you something so be on the lookout thanks jake and jack and so many more and if you want to um, help support the podcast, which we definitely need your help. You can go to patreon.com slash the original doll for a dollar a month. You're able to help keep this going because we need funds to keep these servers up. We need funds to keep the websites up. So even a dollar a month helps us out. So thank you so much. And you get some exclusive content. Now, I want to head right into this. Let's get into our talk with Paxton. We'll be talking about when Baby was, you know, first hit radio waves. Also, the progress in which it was going, how successful it was it, you know, right off the bat. And we pull facts, we pull receipts. Um, and also we'll talk about the Slave for You, Britney era. Uh, there's long been discussions in the Britney community that Britney Spears was quote unquote boycotted or blacklisted because she didn't want to tour with a corporation. We go into all that and we have answers for everything. So Please be on the uh, lookout for that and take a listen and tell other people about this. The more people we have on here, better it is for us, the more people we can help out. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram, the.original.doll. So it's like period, you know what I mean? So here we go. I'll stop talking and this is The Original Doll. The Original Doll. What, first of all, what do you do in radio? How long have you been in radio? And then let's jump into all these questions I have where I can pick your brain. <laughs> I've been in radio since I was uh, 16. And uh, it was pretty much the only thing I'd ever wanted to do. Uh, when I was five, um, a girl who was in my kindergarten class, her dad was on the radio in my hometown. 
And I remember him uh, picking her up from my birthday party and I met him uh, and you know, I couldn't wait to meet this guy because I'd heard his voice on the radio. And of course, he looked nothing like his voice. Um, so that was, you know, even at, even at five, I learned that, you know, no one looks how they sound on the radio. Um, <laughs> so and I have a face made for radio. So this is the perfect job for me. But it, it's, the, it's the only job I've really ever wanted to do. And thankfully, I've been able to do it ever since I was 16. You know, it, like literally... Because uh, you know, back in the day, you used to have to have FCC licenses, little license cards to actually do this job. You don't need to do that anymore. Um, but as soon as I was able to get my FCC license card, uh, that's when I started working at my hometown radio station, uh, you know, running ball games and doing overnight shifts and, and things like that. But um, where's yeah, the hometown? It's a great job. Uh, Keokuk, Iowa, little town, southeast Iowa. I'm not even going to act like I know what that is. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people drive through it, but not a lot of people, you know, stop and, you know, spend some time there. But um, yeah, Iowa's nice, nice place to grow up, you know. Uh, but um, yeah, I've been here in Southern Illinois since 1991, came down here to go to school and never left, you know, and I've been working uh, for this group for the last three years. And the group I was at before that, I was uh, with a station affiliated with that group going back to 1993, I guess. So I've been lucky um, and pretty unique that I've only worked for a couple of different companies in one market. A lot of people like to hop around, um, but uh, my resume is pretty short um, because I've been able to do what I wanted to do uh, and make a living at it and be pretty happy with it. Well, and what I think is cool is like for me talking to anyone in radio and everything, because on the original doll, I, I, the connection is Brittany. And then I kind of explore what that is because a lot of people don't realize it does take a village radio really could make or break somebody, you know, where it's even still today, a lot of songwriters are like, you can do well. If you get that radio hit. even today, if you get that radio hit, you can do well. It so, still matters. And, and as, and, you know, as we, as we talk about it, radio, um, you know, was a nice jumping off point for Britney. But as we'll get into, you know, how Baby evolved into being a hit, it, it still needed some help. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Well, and this is what's great is I can talk to somebody who was in radio at this this whole time, pre, pre-Baby, Baby, and post-Baby. Yeah, um, yeah back, in, back in 1998, I, was, I wasn't working for a top 40 station. I was working for an adult contemporary station that eventually kind of morphed into a hot AC and then that hot AC eventually became a top 40 station after another company bought us. Um, and really, you know, Britney's evolution as an artist is kind of throughout that whole period. Um, so I was, I was sort of able to see all this stuff, maybe not from directly from the sidelines, but, you know, kind of off to the side a bit. Um, because, uh, you know, once she was an established artist, the station I worked for became a top 40 station. Um, and her and a lot of other artists probably to credit for that because top 40, if you talk to people who have been in top 40 for a long time, the format you know, kind of ebbs and flows depending on, you know, the available acts and the culture and just whatever is going on at the time. That's kind of what I wanted to jump into right now is you said adult contemporary top 40. What in a nutshell, what are those what how do those genres, if you will, how do you classify those? Because I know sometimes artists are across yeah they they crossed and and that um and and again talking in late 90s um in terms adult contemporary was still very much a 
you know, a slow tempo, a ballads format, uh, a format for grownups, uh, people who worked, you know, it's the station the whole office can agree upon, um, that sort of thing. Um, it was still a very slow and sleepy format that wasn't very aggressive on new music. It still relied on new music, but it wasn't aggressive on new music as say a hot AC was or a top 40 uh, was and still is. Even then, though, you look at the charts in 1998, and I think I sent some screen caps um, mm-hmm. of the R&R charts back then. If you look at uh, right now, I'm looking at the chart for August 21st of 1998. Essentially, this is the week that Britney would have first had airplay. Mm-hmm. That uh, the station of Rochester, WPXY, would have first played Britney. Um, if you look at the, the CHR chart, the number one song that week on the top 40 chart was Aerosmith's I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Not surprising, movie song, a ballad. Ballads always did very, very well. Um, Especially Diane Warren written. Back then, <laughs> yeah. Goo Goo Dolls' Iris was number two. Brandy and Monica, The Boy Is Mine. Now, the Brandy and Monica thing is interesting because... Um, Urban pop was doing very well during that period. Further down that chart, you have Will Smith, just the two of us. Uh, you had All Saints from the UK, who I love, uh, never ever, was about to break the top 10. Uh, and then a little further down, you see Savage Garden, you see Shania Twain, you see Bare Naked Ladies, Natalie Imbruglia. It's still a very adult format. And that's because mm-hmm. top 40 stations at the time still relied on a lot of mass appeal music. Uh, and they did so to a, a great degree of success. Um, the type of, you know, teen pop um, for a lot of stations didn't get played until late afternoon, night, overnight. Uh, they weren't quite 24-7 songs uh, at that point. Um, black artists were doing very well at that particular time in 1998. That's the other thing to understand, too, that kind of the the playing ground that uh, that Jive had to break into or break through you know, when you got Brandy and Monica and Will Smith uh, doing very well, also further down that chart, uh, you've got uh, Casey and JoJo, All My Life, another huge ballad uh, from that year. Uh, you got uh, Pros Michelle and Maya, Get a Super, Ghetto Superstar. There's a huge hit uh, there in 1998. So there's a lot of good black music. God, I, I hesitate to use the word urban. That's what they called it back, at, back mm-hmm. then. Um, Obviously, the record companies and radio don't call it urban anymore because that's a a silly derivative term that implies that only people of color live in cities. Uh, We now know that that's not true. Um, Mm -hmm. Rhythmic. There are a bunch of code words for black music then. But black music was doing very well back then. At the same time, black music, rhythmic music, dance music, um, the top 40 and even really to this day, Top 40 programmers did not want their stations to sound too much like one thing or another. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see that very representative in these charts. And when, when program directors and music directors, when they put together their music logs, uh, they code certain types of music. You know, is this a rock record? Is this a ballad? Is this urban? Is this, you know, teen music? Is this alternative? Alternative still had a very big influence on the top 40 charts in 1998. If anything, alternative kind of fragmented um, 1997, 1998 between rock alternative and pop alternative. You had uh, Mm. the launch of the Alice format, which is a female leaning uh, pop alternative format. Uh, And many stations that uh, became Alice eventually became hot ACs. It was just the natural progression. Um, In 1998, August of 1998, where does Britney fit in that? Uh, We get a couple of clues. Um, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, 
are just about to break into the top 10 mm. at this point. Um, of course, uh, Backstreet Boys are also on Jive uh, at that point. Max Martin, who produced the song, was also in charge of Backstreet Boys um, creatively at that point. Now, prior to that, the only thing we know Backstreet, uh, the only thing we know Max Martin from prior to Backstreet Boys is Robin. So imagine mm-hmm. if you're a program director in 1998, you get a CD copy of uh, a baby and you listen to it and you think, OK, this is another Robin, potentially, because Max Martin wrote to a Robin's and wrote and produced Robin's two biggest hits at that point. Now, Max Martin being Swedish, it kind of had that that European edge to it, even the Backstreet Boys very early on. And I don't know how much you follow yep. the Backstreet Boys career path. Backstreet Boys took a while to break into the U.S. market. Oh, yeah. It broke mm-hmm. in Europe and even Canada before it broke into the U.S. I had friends in Canada that rented the Backstreet Boys before we had ever heard of them. Um, something about that Max Martin sound, something about that European edge. There was a lot of great pop coming out of the U.K., All Saints. I mentioned them. Yep. Um, even, even post-Spice Girls, there was a lot more really good, sophisticated pop that um, both white and black listeners were into. Only mm-hmm. some of that crossed into the U.S., uh, but that that kind of that Euro influence, uh, Max Martin really brought that over with Robin, with the Backstreet Boys, and eventually with Britney. Uh, so again, this is the playing field that Britney has to break in August of 1998. Mm. There were a handful of stations, um, as you saw, that that gone on her initially. Now it's interesting yep. that Rochester was you know the first market <laughs> that actually played her. Rochester is a very young, very dynamic market, and even back then, it is today, and it still and it was back then in 1998. Um, the market that I would have guessed when I looked that up that would have played Britney first, I would have guessed that Orlando would have been the first Britney market. That's um, what I. That's my my first thought was it's got to be Orlando because they did a lot of showcasing, they did a lot of stuff, and yes, that was the whole that Disney connection. Like play this music, this is the the vibe, and they were all based in Orlando too as well. Yeah. So that that's why I assumed so there. And I'm right now in upstate New York and Syracuse for another couple of weeks, and Rochester I've been to, and I was just like Rochester really. And then when we continue on, I was like some of these places I'm like the most random like rollout. I could even, I could have never picked any of those at the, the first 10 stations. They would have not have been my first pick. I would have thought. Rochester, Rochester makes sense because it's near Buffalo. Western New York is very influenced and still is by what's hot in Canada. Mm. And Canada was always a lot more receptive to pop from anywhere. Ah. Um, so, I, I, I'm, again, I'm just guessing there. I mean, yep. if I knew the programmers from back then. Also, you know, stations had just kind of started streaming back then as well. And one thing radio programmers like to do and still do is they pay attention to what other stations are doing, uh, particularly stations that kind of sound like them. I mean, all pro all programmers kind of model their stage. If they have the power to do so, they model their stations after other stations that they like and admire. Um, so it's possible that some of that was going on uh, initially. But I mean, if you look at who wound up playing that song, you don't get uh, the big stations. You don't get Z100 in New York. You don't get Kiss in L.A really on board that song until you get into October and, and November. And mm-hmm. if you look at the tracking of, you know, how people picked up on the song now, okay. Bear in mind, you know, again, we're, we're talking about this in terms of radio, but there's no video yet for this song. The video wasn't shot until the first week of August. Mm-hmm. It did not premiere on MTV. It wasn't added on MTV until Thanksgiving weekend of 1998. So the baby story up until that point 
is strictly ready on whatever few appearances she did. I, I, I guess she was opening for NSYNC at that time yep. on a few shows. Um, yep. But she, be, yeah, uh, she had some select show. They just tacked her on just like any other label. It's like, yeah, because, you know, their NSYNC was also Jive and they were just like, right. we'll just we'll just tack you on because we already have the, the boy band. Now let's see if we can get the girl influence right there. And, and that's the other thing, too, is, you know, Britney had to ride on the backs of the boy bands uh, for, mm. for better or worse um, back then. You didn't have YouTube. You didn't have streaming services or anything like that. No one's Internet was fast enough. <laughs> for anything to go viral in 19 the only thing that went viral in 1998 was viruses uh basically oh. <laughs> so it was yeah it, now the, the speed at which things become big now um mm-hmm. were so glacial back then because of the technology and just the way things are but if you look at how baby was tracking obviously you had the early adopter stations which we saw places like rochester and orlando some bigger markets start to come on board it officially goes for ads in late September. Um, in fact, uh, the R&R from September 25th, Jive had a full page ad on the front page of R&R saying this is going for ads. And they really highlighted the Max Martin. Um, yep. you see, you know, hey, Matt, you know, if you're a programmer, you know who Max Martin is. Oh, it's Robin. It's Backstreet Boys. So you have an idea in your head uh, what this might sound well, like if you haven't listened to it yet. Well, and I think what was interesting is because there's a lot of people in the the Britney realm that are like, no, it was in October. No, it was September. It was this and that. And it was, I said, you know, based on this, it was the first, you know, documented thing per database or media base. And I said, the other thing is like that R&R cover, it says like the CD is already on your desk and this is in September. So the music had already been sent out to radio stations. And I think that's something where when I first saw that, I was like, this shows that it didn't just, hey, everyone, it's going to be on your desk in a week. This already says, you all have this. You might have overlooked this. Like, here's Max. This is a Max Martin written produced song. And it's well, just your face. <laughs> yeah, if you can imagine, um, you're a program director in 1998. You literally have stacks upon stacks of CD singles on your desk that you're listening to over the course of the week. It may get lost in the shuffle. I mean, it's, it's going to take you a few weeks to get through everything that's getting pushed. At that point, this is back to school time, you know, so if you're trying to push a teen pop product and you want to rely on that in school network, you know, to get that buzz, to get that word of mouth going, uh, there's going to be a lot of product that comes out right around that time. Now, the other thing, too, and you'll remember because the video was shot in early August. It did not wind up on MTV until November. Now, you may remember that Britney originally, or at least Britney and her people had the power. They originally vetoed the original concept of the video, which was almost this live cartoon thing. Like before they Power stepped Rangers. In and said, no, the, the people that are going to make this a hit are school kids. It needs to be in the school. So that's when they went to the school that they shot Grease in and, and did the whole thing and made it more dance oriented and all that. That was very big for that because if the concept was any different, I don't know if it would have been the biggest hit because if you look at the radio tracking, there's early adopters, there's bigger stations that pick it up in October and then it kind of stalls out kind of just south of the top 10 there in November. And it stays there until the video comes out. And then when the mm. video comes out, that's, that's the jumping off point for the song because then people can see her. They see the dancing, they get the whole image. It, it kind of all ties it together at that point. So while radio kind of whetted the appetite, it was really the video that, that really put it through the roof at that point, because then the early adopter stations 
who got on it and thought it was a hit, it kind of cooled off for them a little bit. And they, they kind of slowed down the rotation a little bit. But then after the video came out, the requests started coming back in. Again, you know, you don't have YouTube data. You don't have streaming data. You just have, you know, kids calling the radio stations saying, I want to hear this song. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of stations who were on it brought it back at that point. A lot of stations who were on the fence uh, decided, okay, yeah, this is a legitimate hit here. We get it. Um because, you know, prior to that point, unless you had seen her open up for NSYNC, I'm sure there were programmers. I don't I don't remember back then if the original CD single had any artwork with it. But it was it's quite just, possible. It's quite possible. Yeah. Some some people said, OK, is she European? I see there's a Max Martin thing. Is she black? We don't know. It sounds a little rhythmic. So that was so that was what I was going to say. So I have so back in Chicago, where where I live. In my room, I have this complete wall of all the singles from the different countries and everything, the promo stuff. I got stuff from radio people. And the I'll pull up what the um, the photo was because part of the discussion early on was, is this a Black artist? Because what you saw in the video was not the voice. It didn't, to your point of the radio voice, that her voice wasn't matching up with what people thought yes. she would look like. And I think what's interesting is at that time, because the song was... Um, Max Martin talked about the song he originally pitched to TLC and he's like this is TLC and he even said to this day he's like I made an R&B song it just so happened to sound pop in the US but back in Sweden and Germany this was a very like how NSYNC or or not NSYNC Backstreet Boys where they were big out there and everyone's like oh they're more R&B you get here and it's like oh it's just pop and I think the interesting thing is this rollout that a lot of people are like, oh, it hit radio. And then the next week it was number one. And it's like, that's not, that's not the case at all. There was that slow burn here. Let me see if you, I don't know if you can see it from this angle. Yes. Yeah. It, oh, that was actually the cover of the R&R. That's right. the actual, right. that was the that's, single that's the cover. they used. And then they started changing the whole, even the album thing on the back, they changed new, completely different photo shoot. They were like, this didn't track well. So let's change this up. Okay. So well, go ahead. But yeah, the um, when the when the video you know came out again Thanksgiving weekend, yeah, you because know, you have to think about you know what are what are kids, you know what are kids doing in their lives, you know. So it's Thanksgiving weekend. Maybe they're seeing more of their friends, you know. Then you get to the Christmas season, and all that, and this thing is really picking up steam. It's it's the hottest video on MTV, uh, for sure. Um, and then you get to the Christmas season. The album's not out yet. The album's not out until January, which I you know. Looking back, I think that's a miscalculation on Jive's part. Now, when the album does come out in January, I'm sure there's a lot of kids that spent their Christmas money buying it. I'm hopping out for a second because I wanted to talk about this. Many times people are asking, when do we celebrate Baby One More Time? You know, the release. You ultimately can pick any day that you want because there are lots of great dates in there. Something that I wanted to talk about was the evolution of the single and the album. There were a lot of changes. Uh, As we've just heard, Baby One More Time didn't pick up right away. It wasn't until months later when the video came out that it started picking up traction. Now, there's an article that I found that was in Billboard magazine in January of 1999, just as the album was being released. It's by Jeff Mayfield. And it says... A snake Eyes rookie teen star Britney Spears, basically saying since she got a number one single and a number one album. Now he goes on to say, originally, Jive scheduled the album to hit stores late last year, so 1998. 
but decided instead to wait for the lower sales tide of January. As Paxton talked about, the music business kind of takes a little hiatus and they kind of freeze their playlist. Same thing happens with music being released. Could, the article continues to say, its patience is rewarded with a chart-topping bow on the Billboard 200 with a relatively modest 120,500 units. The newcomer has a lead of more than 7,000 units over the runner-up, which happens to be another BMG fave and sync. Okay, it continues, and this is the interesting part. Had the former Mouseketeer albums hit stores December 15th, which was the original date, yep, original date for the album for Baby One More Time was December 15th. Now, had it been released during that, that time frame and sold, let's say, the same amount, it would have been charting at number 30. That's right. Had it been released on its original date with the same amount of albums sold, it would have debuted at number 30 and not number one. Now, it continues to say more important is the long-standing debate over whether singles cannibalize album sales, an argument that has been raging since 1987, when the cassette single reinvigorated the singles market. Here's what's interesting, and we love facts here at the original Doll. Almost 80% of Spears' hot 100 points come from the sale of 134,000 copies of this single. I've had some people tell me that we would have sold 200 units of the album if we didn't put the single out, but I don't think it makes much of a difference. That was said by Jive President Barry Weiss. Now, what I wanted to do is go into this. Back in Billboard, now if we rewind back to August, August of 1998, guess what? There's a review of the single, Baby One More Time. And I'm going to read this, and the Britney fans, you'll know why this is an interesting article. It says, New and noteworthy, Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. Producers, Max Martin, Eric Foster. Writers, Max Martin, Eric Foster. Publishers, not listed. Then it says, Remixer, David Sinospina, who happened to be a former guest of the original Doll. Check out those episodes. Then it continues to say, Spears is a 16-year-old Louisiana native who is gunning for some of the top 40 fame recently lavished upon Robin, which Paxton talked about Robin. Produced by famed Europop stars, Max Martin and Eric Foster, Baby One More Time, chugs with an insinuating faux-funk beat and super shiny synths. Okay? Then it says, it talks about the house mix by David Sinospina. That's August of 1998. Okay, now let's fast forward in September, still before the people celebrate the, the birthday of Baby One More Time at the end of October, September Billboard magazine, for the record, that it says, the review of Baby One More Time by Britney Spears in the August 22nd issue of Billboard incorrectly credited the single's producers, songwriters, and publishers. The song was produced by Max Martin and Rami, written by Max Martin. It's published by Zamba. So for those who know, Eric Foster White did most of the uh, other songs on the album. Okay, we'll continue on. October 10th. On October 10th, the Merchants and Marketing Direct, the radio kind of publication, they talk about Sarasota Springs, New York. Britney Spears was there with Jimmy Summers by Lake George. Um, Divine was there. 
Blue Plate Special and Super 400. They were there signing copies of their CDs, posters, flyers, everything. Okay, continuing on. In the October 10th, October 10th, 1998, there's an article about Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the soundtrack. And it says, and it will feature music from Britney Spears. And we know what songs were on that. So what's funny is, once again, this is before people celebrate this. They're already talking about Sabrina the Teenage Witch by October 10th. Okay. So it goes on and on. And additionally, a couple of the articles that I saw in the radio magazines and publications is it talked about how Jive really started this whole promotion, this whole thing. By December of 1998, they said they were six months into the promotion, which would put it to June of that year. What's interesting is around June, Jive had started a toll-free number that you can call and hear a snippet of Baby One More Time. Also, there were backpacks made with Britney Spears that were sent out to radio programmers with some other artists. Um, there were articles about Full Force working with a lot of the Jive artists coming up. This was all before October. So for us here at the Original Doll, we're just celebrating, you know, the first known play on radio for Baby One More Time because that was important and it really changed pop music. So I'm going to hop in a second. And once again, don't forget to go to patreon.com slash the Original Doll. What I'm doing is I'm going to be posting something pretty much every day for what Britney Spears was doing that day. If you follow me on Instagram, you can see that I've been able to talk to concert uh, viewers, concert um, attendees, and also box office people where we can kind of get the facts out there. It's interesting because we use Britney Spears as the connector for all these stories, but you can take Britney Spears out of it and talk about the importance of radio for anyone from Cardi B to vitamin C, you know, all these people. I don't know why I just thought of those two, but it's kind of fun. So I'm going to hop back in. Don't forget, follow me on Instagram, that dot original dot doll. And back to Paxton. I must confess that my loneliness. Um, but I think they missed a Christmas opportunity there by not having the album out at that point. But it didn't matter because something that happens generally in December and January and February in radio, that's when people go on vacations. That's when, you know, you, you freeze your playlist because there isn't generally a lot of new product coming out at the end of the year or the beginning of the next year. The new product really didn't start hitting your desk until February and March, and they probably had a backlog of product sitting on their desk mm. anyway. So there's a lot of stuff that were probably on program directors' desks in November and December that didn't break until February or March just because programmers traditionally kind of take those two months off uh, as far as reporting playlists and, and really being aggressive adding new music. So the stuff that's, that's climbing the charts uh, it's advantageous to them. So, you know, Baby just got bigger in December, got bigger in January. The album comes out, what, second week of January, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, by the end of January, it's the number one Billboard hit. By the second week of February, it's an R&R &R top 40 number one hit. And and I think it was, not, what, number one on Billboard for three weeks. And on the R&R &R chart, it stays there at the top for a month. So well into mid-March, it's the number one song um, wow. in the country. Um, if the video doesn't come out in November, it stalls out and it's dead by Christmas, possibly. Unless she goes mm -hmm. on tour, makes some big TV appearance or something. 
uh, just because there weren't a lot of other outlets to really get the visual out there at that point. Um, again, things don't go viral in 1998 like they do now, or even five years later. Um, now, the other thing to consider, too, is back in 1998, there were a lot more companies operating radio stations. By 1999, well, let's, let's put it this way, a year after Baby came out, there was a lot of consolidation amongst the big radio companies to where the record labels had more of a one-stop shop as far as pushing their music. Whereas you had to make 50 calls in 1998, maybe that list is now 20 calls in 99 because these companies got larger. That's how the, the station I worked at became a top 40 station, Clear Channel, who did a lot of buying up of smaller companies and stations, uh, purchased our station um, in Illinois. Mm. And we uh, took our hot AC and it became one of the KISS FMs that, um, that Clear Channel um, had uh, as a template uh, at, that, at that particular time. And that particular version of the KISS FM was extremely more rhythmic, even three years after what we saw in 1998. Now, there were some stations that were still more mainstream, but they were much more poppy. They were much more rhythmic. Um, it almost made the top 40s of 1998 seem like they were hot ACs. Um, it, it really, it, it just accelerated the whole rhythmic trend. Uh, black artists benefited. Um, boy bands and pure pop stars benefited through that period. Um, and that happened really fast, even by the standards of those days. And then as internet and file sharing and Napster and all that um, started to mm -hmm. kick in, uh, then everything just got faster. Everything just started going downhill uh, at that point, as far as the speed of how these uh, trends accelerated. Well, and the thing is, cause I was just pulling up on, on the side thing is this whole rollout of the song and how it came to be her first TRL performance or not a performance appearance wasn't until the week before Christmas. Then her first live performance of it wasn't until January 8th on the Howie Mandel show of 1999. <laughs> so uh, she was, she was touring with NSYNC before that. But I think the thing that I don't want the listeners to lose is this was not an overnight sensation hit. This was not. And I feel like they were catching up like, Oh, well, now we need to like make the single. We need to have the video. We need to do this. Cause I, I think they were probably like, Hey, she's going to be an opening act for somebody just like many opening acts where they don't really go further than that. Not everyone. Cause you know, there's, there's always those exceptions, not the rules, but I think that's something that's interesting because as she's riding high, number one billboard, then it's like, Oh, now she's finally doing these performances. Now she's, you know, being seen and, that's why when you had sent these screenshots, I was like, so many people are like, no, definitely did not hear it on radio until the end of September. I go, maybe at your station, but we have the, we have the detections. We have the experts here. So let me ask you this with this situation versus other songs in the entirety of your career. Was this like what I keep saying, kind of not so much a slow burn, not like how do I live Leanne rhymes, but is this the, time it takes for most songs to be hits or was this a little slower or faster based on this time it seemed to be slower given the impact it would eventually have and given the impact that britney would have as an artist again you would expect it to have been bigger and faster um but you know it formatically it was a game changer like many of the other uh pure pop songs that came out in that in that era uh they were all slow burns because it's very hard for programmers to change habits, particularly if what you're doing is, is a success. Um, there were top 40 stations, mainstream top 40 stations that were essentially 
stations for mom in the office during the day. And then they became stations for teenagers and kids at night and overnight. Uh, um, it wasn't until you get into 99, 2000, 2001, where top 40 stations were the same thing at seven o'clock at night that they were at 11 a.m. Um, you could you could be a very successful station by being two different radio stations in 1998. But, you know, when when this with this rhythmic pop really started to explode. Um, it no longer made sense for you to try to cater to somebody in an office, particularly if there was an AC station in your market or as more consolidation happened in your group. You know, you, you could have a station, you know, down the hall that's trying to attract workplace listening. If you're a top 40, still trying to, if you're still playing, you know, Elton John, if you're still playing a new Elton John song, you know, mm -hmm. at two o'clock in the afternoon because you still want to attract workplace people and you have a workplace station <laughs> tour, two doors down in the building, let them have it. Be a pure pop station so when the kids get out of school, um, you're playing their music. Because uh, that's that, that's one of those identity things because like I was, I was 18 in 1998 and if I heard, I mean, I knew Candle in the Wind, which was like the year before, let's say, but yeah. I know that if, it sounded like an old person station. I would have clicked the button to go to the next one, especially because I'm like, I want to have fun. I want to have, you know, this energy and everything. So let me ask you this. So with this baby one more time thing, what do you think, do we know what the peak was where she had the most spins in a week? Like, do you, can you guesstimate what time period that like, that was the height of that, um, of baby one more time the single late late january and february of 99 would probably have been the, the peak spins um that said at some point it started to cross over into hot ac stations once you get into march april and may mm. so it's so it's possible that the, the total number of spins actually may have been more at that point or at least the number of stations playing baby would have been more at that point even if the spins didn't necessarily match uh, obviously billboard and r and r uh, and Gavin was still um, a reporting publication at the time. Uh, they had different um, different ways of, of calculating that. Um, but now it's interesting because I think, and I think even Dana had asked me this at some point, we wanted to find out what the most spun Britney song was. Yeah, yeah. To hear more of that part of this episode, head on over to patreon.com slash the original doll. Find out which song it is and why. And, and and if you look at Britney's chart career, the ballads really aren't what do it for. Um, no, the, the Britney and, people wanted was the rhythmic Britney. And the other thing too is this was at the time where a lot of songs. I remember I think it was Iris and Uninvited, where it was like you couldn't chart on Billboard just on radio play. And Baby was a physical single in the U.S. Sometimes was it Crazy was from the bottom was and from the bottom of my broken heart is one of her certified singles, like which it. it it's sold more than these other songs aside from baby. But I think that that's, what's crazy too, is at the time it's, we're coming to the point where they're like, okay, we should not exclude somebody from billboard because it's only on radio. And I don't remember what that first radio song was, but it's, I remember Google doll, whatever, like the soundtrack songs all were big where it's like, no, we're going to force you to buy that. <laughs> we're going to force you to buy that album and not buy yeah, the there was, there were so many ways that the record companies try to game the system uh, back then. 
as far as, you know, distribution of singles, you know, single versus album, try to get it on this soundtrack, releasing a couple different versions of the videos. I mean, there's all different. I mean, there were still very limited ways of doing it, but they tried a bunch of things. Now, one thing, and I don't know, this this wasn't so much a factor in, in, in Britney, but in, I think it was June of 99, Mediabase um, went from essentially... Uh, taking playlists that were self-reported by the programmers to actually doing live monitoring in markets, mm-hmm. which you would think, okay, maybe there's this big discrepancy between what PDs are saying they play and what actually did play. Um, there was in some cases, but not a lot. But uh, because you got a pure snapshot, a live snapshot of what stations actually were playing versus what they said they were playing, there were still some payola going on where, yeah, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll say I'm, pay, I'm playing this song 15 times a week if you give me some promotional money. Um, the people that were doing that, um, that, that media-based policy change in June of 99, um, that busted out those PDs. Um, I don't know if there was any of that going on with Britney um, mm-hmm. back then. Um, you would think, um, because again, you know, it, was, it wasn't until June of 99 when they changed this policy. Um, you could have had a lot of fake Britney spins if Jai was offering a bunch of promotional money for stations, you know, to boost the spins on it. Um, I don't see any evidence of that happening because you can kind of look at charts and say, you know, whoa, that had a big spike and ooh, that one went away. So someone must have been getting play, uh, paid to play that. I mean, you can see that with certain songs, you know, kind of, uh, well, really, you know, in there's a whole payola era, several payola yeah. areas, uh, er- <laughs> eras. Uh, in, in the top 40 era where, and, and music research also bears this out as well, where number one songs that nobody really truly liked, but they wound up at number one because someone was getting paid to play. Them. Uh, and you, and we're talking about, you know, 60s, 70s, you know, early eighties. Yeah. I don't know that that much was going on uh, in the nineties, but you would um, notice there were a lot of changes going on in that era. Um, would, I was going to say, you would also know something if like, you know, Mandy Moore's fourth single from an album is out charting Britney Spears, like Baby One More Time. Do you know, there's things like that where you're just like, that doesn't seem right because Britney Baby One More Time was everywhere. But if you were like, Will Afford's second single from her third album <laughs> is the number, you're like, and Will Afford's probably like, why? Like, I don't even know that song. But that was something that we, we, we talk about in a coming episode about the payola aspect of it and how a lot of um, corporations really take a part in it. And then what I wanted to talk to you about so that I don't forget is to jump to 2001 and talk about this. There's a longstanding Britney fan theory that Britney was blacklisted by Clear Channel because she chose not to go with Clear Channel for a tour. She ended up going with Concerts West. Now, a lot of people alleged that because of that, Clear Channel was like, nope, we're boycotting Britney we're pulling her back from all these stations. So I want to come to you as somebody who's an, an expert in radio and has been around for, for decades where is this something that was a thing that could happen to artists where if they chose not to go with Clear Channel that their spins would be impacted or was it the song came out like around September 11th, 2001. And were you playing Enya or were you playing Britney Spears Slave for You during that time? So let's jump into this. I talk about the Slave for You debacle in an upcoming episode with Paxton. Now, what some people may not know is what are we talking about? Well, there's been this whole fan theory that Britney Spears, I'm a Slave for You, uh, suffered, you know, its success 
due to uh, radio and being quote unquote boycotted and blacklisted and all these other terms uh, because people said Britney Spears chose not to go with this corporation and when she chose not to for the tour uh, there's this thought by some people that there was punishment that there was going to be um, payback for Britney not going alongside this corporation I'm going to go into that very very soon so make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you can get this right away uh, you can follow me on Instagram the dot original dot doll and on the platform that you use to listen to this please be kind and do me a favor and review the podcast um, the more reviews we have the better it is for us the more um, exposure we're going to get and the other thing is within the first 24 hours of each episode's first listens we get items donated to charity so just by you listening right now you're able to help us out help other people so Thank you so much, and if you'd like any more information, go ahead and go to www.theoriginaldoll.com, and I will chat with you soon. See you on the flip side. The original doll.